This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Two years ago, a DNA relative informed me of my relation to Alice or Alice Young of Windsor, the first accused witch executed in the English colonies. This may seem like an old issue, irrelevant after being buried over centuries, but I have difficulty telling my granddaughters and my grandsons what happened to their ancestors. We should protect people who did not have the power to defend themselves. When we talk about witches in the U.S., you might think black cats and broomsticks. But for many residents of New England, the subject evokes very real past cruelties. Those were just some of the voices heard at a public hearing last spring in Hartford, Connecticut. The hearing was for a bill to exonerate those accused in colonial witch trials in the state. In the 17th century, at least nine women and two men in Connecticut were hanged for alleged witchcraft. And this May the state passed a resolution to clear the names of Connecticut witch trial victims more than 370 years later. After the break, we'll talk to the Connecticut state senator who helped pass the resolution, a historian and a descendant of an accused person who advocated for the exoneration of their ancestors, and what the legacy of accusations means for us in 2023. I'm Dessa, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our discussion after this short break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get right into it. Joining us from Aurora, Colorado, is Sarah Jack. She is co-founder of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project and co-host of Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial Podcast. Sarah, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And also with us from Windsor, Connecticut, is Democratic State Senator Saoud Anwar. Senator Anwar, welcome. Thank you so much, Dessa. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, you live in Colorado. So what is your personal connection to the issue in Connecticut? 
Um, I have always enjoyed doing my um, family research as a hobby, and I was familiar with witch trials because Rebecca Nurse and Mary Esty from the Salem Witch Trials are ninth great-grandmothers of mine, and I was working on another line in my tree one day, and I realized this ancestor, Winifred Benham Sr., was an accused witch of Wallingford, Connecticut, and I had great curiosity about that because at the time I was not aware that there were witch trials outside of Salem Mm. and I wanted to know more. I wanted to find out who was talking about it. Was there a memorial? And I started looking at Connecticut. And my understanding is that the Connecticut trials actually predate the Salem trials by some 30 years or so. Is that about right? Um, Yes, the first executed witch in the American colonies was in Connecticut in 1647. And how, okay, so did you just say that you have essentially traced more than one line of your lineage to different accused witches in both Salem and in Connecticut? I have, and it's not super unusual if you have New England roots to find ties back to these trials. But, um, and I actually have another one, Winifred Benham, who I just mentioned, who was tried in Connecticut. Her mother, Mary Hale had also been tried in Boston 10 years before her. And why did you seek these details of your family? Were you, did you stumble upon them essentially during an, you know, uh, an Ancestry.com issue? Or were you driven for political or historical curiosities other than that? All of those things. Mm-hmm. I had a great aunt who had started our family research and who had discovered the Rebecca Nurse connection. Um, later on, because of the online technology, I was able to confirm that with records, uh, expand that search. And I do have, um, you know, his- history, um, sociology, my family story. Those are all very important things to me, especially now that I'm aware that. There's social injustice happening right now to accused witches in many parts of our world. And so, yeah, let's let's connect it now to, to the, the current event. On May 25th of this year, lawmakers passed a resolution absolving the alleged crimes of a dozen people convicted of witchcraft in colonial Connecticut. And of those 12 convictions, 11 were executed. So can you describe your role and the, that of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project in the pursuit of that end? Um, yes, um, I would. You know, as we've said, I was so impacted by my family history. Um, I, um, it just my focus on it developed and, and led to more things, more relationships with other descendants and advocates. And there are a lot of activists and advocates that worked on this that are not even descendants. It's um, the subject itself is just very dear to a lot of people because of the suffering that happened and is hap- happening. I co-founded the Exoneration Project with. Mary Bingham, Tony Grigo, Josh Hutchinson, Beth Crusoe, and Windsor House um, Representative Jane Garibay. We, um, Tony and Beth are Connecticut residents who had been working on education and exoneration efforts for many years. But last year, Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was exonerated in Salem, Massachusetts. That was happening during the 375th anniversary of Alice Young's execution. No one was talking about Alice. So it really kicked us into gear. Connecting with Jane was important. And then we all teamed up with Senator Anwar to propose the bill. If we pull the lens back for a second, though, and and I put on a critical hat, I might say, 
This stuff happened a really, really long time ago. We have more than a full plate of current pressing issues to address. And a resolution, yeah, it's pretty gestural. It's, it's a piece of paper. So why was this so important to you? Why did it make sense to devote the time and clearly the resources and energy you have to, to seeking the exoneration? Yeah, it, you know, the gesture is strong because the other parts of the world where there are thousands of people being attacked as alleged witches right now are looking at our country. What are you saying about this type of circumstance? And although to us in our country that several centuries is a long time, for many cultures who have been where they are for thousands of years, that's a very short time. Hmm. And so that's just a matter of perspective. Was this a long time ago? And the you know human rights um, protecting vulnerable people here, there, everywhere of all ages is a pressing issue because we still have problems with targeting those that we fear. I'm going to turn now to you, Senator Anwar, if I may. I know that you drafted your own measure in the Connecticut State Senate, and you told our producers that one constituent approached you with the story of their ancestors. Can you tell me what they told you? Sure. Um, so um, initially, when uh, I got uh, uh, involved in this, uh, somebody had approached me and uh, they spoke to me and they requested that uh, we put a bill forward. And I wanted to learn why that was important. At that time, I had not done my homework on, on the background. And um, this individual uh, mentioned that uh, he believed that his ancestors were involved. Uh, they were either witch accusers or they were involved in the prosecution of witches. And, in, and uh, he felt that it's important for him and his family to clear the name and, and, and try to undo the wrong that was done uh, by his ancestors. And as I learned more about this, I realized what important and big issue that that has been and that's been part of our history that uh, uh, we in the state of Connecticut need to do much more about. Do you remember how it hit you in that first conversation? I mean, I have to imagine this isn't usually when people are running up to shake your hand. Like they're more likely to ask about potholes than witches. Yeah. Were you surprised? I was surprised, uh, but uh, it it was a, a situation that we were um, alone. And I'll just share this. This was an individual. I'm a physician by profession was somebody who's a patient as well. So mm. we had the privacy and we could have the conversation where I could look at the emotions and then and understand uh, how important this was to this individual. I'll ask a brief question and feel free to brush me off if it doesn't uh, connect. But knowing that you're also a, a physician, does that change your understanding of this issue in its entirety, knowing how often, for example, people might be accused of witchcraft because their child survived an epidemic and another family's child didn't. Are you aware of the different perspective on this entire context that you might have as a, as a physician? I, I did. And, and as I learned more about this issue, it, it became quite uh, real. And, and um, at the center of this whole issue, there was a physician. And, and that was uh, one of the former governors of the state of Connecticut, uh, who was Dr. John Winthrop, who um, actually did talk about uh, the fact that these trials were um, not following any standards. And the rationale oh. that some people were getting better and others were not was because of witchcraft was counter to medicine altogether. 
and uh, and he was uh, the the most strongest powerful voice of reason uh, um, in the 1600s uh, when this was happening um, and and I, I connected with that um, aspect quite a bit mm. I know that the resolution passed uh, very swiftly and, and handily in both the House and the Senate, but there was some debate on the exact language of the resolution. You wanted the accused to be, quote, exonerated, end quote, but the final language instead says that those crimes were absolved. What's the difference and why did you feel the way you did? Well, um, I, I felt uh, the exoneration would be the right word to to have because they were uh, punished. We needed to clear their names, and um, uh, men, some of the members in the judiciary felt that that's too legal a term, and they felt that absolved would be a better term from their perspective. And and uh, in order to get a larger group of people to be supportive of this, uh, we agreed that we were willing to change the name from exoneration to absolved. And, and it was not it, it was not as critical to us to change that uh, name title. Can I get your gut check on that, Sarah? How, how did you feel when you when you tracked that the language had been changed? Yeah, um, you know, it wasn't a surprise. Um, I was there at the hearing with the Judiciary Committee, the um, representatives that had issue with the terminology, you know, expressed it from the beginning. And as um, Senator Anwar said, it even though it was a change we weren't excited about, we really just wanted to get this apology, this acknowledgement, the um, having the witchcraft crimes absolved was important. Getting the victims named in the resolution, those were all wins. We've got this email in from a listener named Joe. My ninth great-grandmother, Rebecca Greensmith, was hung as a witch in Hartford, Connecticut in 1662. She was despised by her neighbors, which led to an accusation. And as she went down, she didn't hesitate to accuse others, including her own third husband. She willingly confessed to familiarity with the devil and sealed her fate. I feel that while she may have been an unpleasant woman, she was also likely suffering from mental illness. I feel sorry for her and sad that witchcraft accusations were used as a weapon of revenge, religious persecution, and misogyny in those days. Jill, thank you for that message. Now, as we've said, the final vote was 33 to 1 on the Senate floor, passing that resolution for the exoneration and the absolvement of accused witches. Here is the Republican Senator, Rob Sampson, who was the lone nay vote. We were not there. We do not know what the circumstances were, and I think it's wrong. In fact, I think it's arrogant, as I mentioned, and childlike to suggest that somehow we have a right to dictate what was right or wrong at periods in the past that we have no knowledge of. And I don't want to see bills that rightfully or wrongfully attempt to paint America as a bad place with a bad history. I want us to focus on where we're going, which is a brighter and better future. Starting with you, Sarah, can I solicit your reaction to that clip? Um, yes, I really hope that um, Senator Sampson learns that to get to that brighter future for everybody, that witch hunt mentality is addressed historically and currently. I 
was so thrilled with the overall support that day. Watching those green yeses light up across that board was, you know, I can't even describe how that feels. Um, Not just getting it passed, but with so much support. That was the second win. And so, um, you know, he the message from uh, Senator Sampson is um, not the majority, but it is one that people feel. And there's lots of education to yet do. And I hope we reach more people. And briefly, what, what about you, Senator Anwar? Sure. I, I, I wanted to just, uh, Sarah and then a number of other individuals were right there in the Senate li- listening to this as well. And and we were all looking at the emotions, and, and uh, I can tell you that, uh, thankfully, very few people agreed with uh, Senator Sampson on mm. this issue. And, and the reality is that uh, this was pretty straightforward decision. There were no two views, at the, if, if you look at it from a legal point of view, moral point of view, or any other perspective. You would say wrong is wrong, and it's important to stand up and say, we are sorry that this has happened. And um, uh, yes, with respect to the brighter future, we have to have a, a vision of a brighter future. But brighter future starts with acknowledging the wrongs that we have done and make sure we collectively take a position that we will not do wrong going forward. And it sounds like this conversation connects to larger conversations around the world that are being hap- that are happening on the same topic or on theme. Earlier, we spoke to Nigerian human rights advocate Leo Igwe. He is fighting against witchcraft accusations across the African continent. And there, children accused of witchcraft in some African countries face exile, assault, and even death. And Igwe described the so-called witch camps in Ghana to us. These are refuge centers. Accused people who suspect that they could be killed, they run to those places. But in our trying to put it in English language, we call it witch camps, which reinforces the notion and doesn't weaken it. And I went there and I interviewed people and they told me a lot of traumatic experiences. And these are those who made it, who survived. Many people don't make it to these places. They get killed. They get stabbed to death. They just die. Many of them come there and die of hunger and and of preventable diseases. So I think that there's a whole lot of suffering all in the name of this superstitious belief. He also talked to us about the importance of the resolution in Connecticut from his perspective. I felt fulfilled because... All this while, I have been saying, there are some connections between what happened 300 years ago and what's going on now. And our ability to make these connections will enable us mobilize globally against you know, the forces and authorities in places where this is going on today. So that is why that trip is important. And that is why the symbolism there is so rich and resonates beyond the frontiers of Connecticut, beyond the frontiers of the United States. That was Leo Igwe, director of the Project Advocacy for Alleged Witches. Coming up after the break, we'll dive deeper into the history of colonial witch trials and what we can learn from them today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. 
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to our conversation about the exoneration of accused witches centuries later with Sarah Jack. She's the co-founder of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project and Thou Shalt Not Suffer, the Witch Trial Podcast. And joining us to discuss the history and modern implication of colonial witch hunts is Anne Little. She's a professor of history at Colorado State University. Anne, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Professor Little, how long was this era of witch trials in the U.S. and how many people were affected? Just kind of a context for this entire conversation. Well, there are a few women that are accused of witchcraft in the later 18th century, but the the bulk of witch trials, accusations in witch trials, I should say, happened uh, in early colonial America between 1620 and 1725, uh, when in colonial New England, which is where the majority of these witchcraft cases uh, originated, there were 355 women and men accused of witchcraft, and 35 of them were executed for witchcraft. And what was the range of penalties that a convicted witch might suffer? Um, it was execution. <laughs> um, the, the laws of the Puritan colonies in early New England were based on uh, Deuteronomy in large part. And so the, um, the penalty for witchcraft, for being accused or for being uh, convicted of witchcraft was execution. There are some people whose executions were set aside, um, but there really was no other penalty for witchcraft if you were executed, for, uh, if, you were, if you were convicted. You know, in her podcast, Thou Shalt Not Suffer, Sarah interviewed a number of the descendants of some of these people accused of witchcraft. And I just want to play a clip from one of those descendants. Her name is Sherry Keeper. I hate to say this because people died, but I thought it was really cool. They were people who really kind of bucked the system in a lot of ways. And usually that's what got them to be an outcast where they were different. In that respect, I thought it was really cool that my ancestor was somebody who was causing enough trouble <laughs> that they felt that this was the way to deal with her. And then when a lot of my friends found out, you know, a lot of them like, we're not surprised that you were descended from somebody like this. You know, the implication there is that there's sort of like a nonconformity that might be associated with witches. Granted, we're talking about it now at Centuries of Remove. But Professor Little, can you describe the kind of person who was most likely to be accused of witchcraft and why? Well, there is something to that suggestion that these are sort of social and cultural outsiders. Um, They tended to be um, people who were, well, they tended to be women, uh, Almost 80% of all people accused and convicted of witchcraft were, were women. Um, and they were women they, who tended to be over the age of 40. So unless surviving your childbearing years and aging to menopause is a sign of being a rebel, I, I'm not really <laughs> persuaded by that particular analysis. Right? Can't it be, but, though? But these are, well, well yeah. these are people who were, who were, I think, many of them considered a little troublesome in their mm. communities. Um, as your email that you read previously suggested, maybe some of these people were suffering from mental illness. Um, it's astonishing to me that the number of times that witches are always accused of muttering 
to nobody or muttering when they pass by somebody's house. And I don't know if any of you are older people or live with older people, but there's a lot of muttering that happens with, <laughs> mm-hmm. with people. And um, muttering, I, it seems to me, should not be dispositive of criminal intent for anything. So I, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that suggestion that um, you know, p- these people were sort of noble rebels against a, you know, an unjust system. I think a lot of these people were just women who had aged out of their reproductive capacity, and they were vulnerable uh, to these accusations because New England had um, relatively even numbers of men and women, and these are women who no longer could, could contribute um, you know, fruitfully to the growth of the New England population. I read that one of the factors that would render someone more likely to be accused was that she didn't have a male heir, a surviving male heir. Is that accurate? Yes, that's true. And I should say these numbers that I'm quoting in that argument comes from not my own research. I've never actually published on this, but this comes from a book, very important book by a historian uh, by the name of Carol Carlson in her book, The Devil in the Shape of a Woman, which was published almost 40 years ago now in 1987. Um, But yes, she's the historian who made the argument that we needed to take seriously this idea that witchcraft was a function of a kind of misogynistic culture in Puritan New England. And she's the person who did did the demographic analysis and showed that uh, women over 40 were more likely to be accused uh, and and convicted of witchcraft. And this is especially true in the witchcraft outbreaks. Um, of Fairfield and Salem and Hartford, um, where where large numbers of women and men at a time were accused of witchcraft. And in those outbreaks particularly, what sort of things would lead to an accusation? Why would one neighbor, you know, point an accusatory finger at the next? What was the evidence, essentially, for, for witchcraft? The the evidence is purely correlation, right? So somebody might be, an older woman might walk by and be muttering to herself and uh, somebody's child sickened and died or their cow stopped giving milk and then sickened and died. Um, a, lot of, a lot of these accusations originated from the very sort of intimate and face-to-face culture that, that uh, New Englanders had, Anglo-American New Englanders had in the 17th and early 18th centuries. So a lot of these come out of sort of very sort of intimate, personal sort of relationships and maybe personal resentments that had festered over time. Mm. Historians have given a variety of different explanations for these um, these sort of the outbreaks that, that seized different communities at different points in time within the century of witchcraft. Um, some people suggested that it was the expiration of the Massachusetts Charter and the, and in the late 1680s and the, and the shutdown of the courts in Massachusetts that caused this kind of social turmoil. Um, others have written books about how it was religious differences and controversies between neighbors over different ministers that led to this. Um, as I suggested, uh, Carol Carlson has argued very forcefully that it was sex bias that led to uh, and and uh, and, a, and and stereotypes about women that led to them being accused of witchcraft. Mm. More recently, historians have argued that it was the legacy, in part, the anxiety, the social anxiety that Anglo Americans felt because of the Native American wars um, and attacks by Native Americans, um, because of the English invasion of North America um, that were happening at the same time, uh, and and also they've. Uh, argued recently that there are environmental factors that may have influenced witchcraft accusations. Gosh, you know, it sounds like there's such a host of macro 
cultural forces that might be kind of introducing anxiety or disruption into a society that can kind of vented through these accusations as I'm listening to you talk about it, you know, particularly um, when addressing that kind of misogynistic thread that often seems to run through a lot of these narratives. You know, we got an email from a listener that tied into that. Her name is Jill Stanovich. And Jill writes, I'm descended from Alice Stokes Young. She was chained in a windowless cell for months before being hanged. Her daughter was later accused, but had a son who sued the accuser and won. Patriarchy, period. And we'll come back in just a moment to some of those overarching cultural themes that might contribute, kind of the, the, the backdrop against which those accusations are made. But I want to play another clip. This is, again, from Sarah Jack's podcast, an interview with, an, with a descendant that she did. This one is from a woman named Rosemary Lang. This genealogy was presented to my mother when I was a baby. And when I was older, I read about it, found out about Mary Burns being an accused witch. And in the genealogy, it said she was accused of drunkenness and fornication. I'm not ashamed or anything about it because she was probably just an innocent woman. And I remember quite a few years ago, there was a presentation at the old state house in Hartford. It was made as a Halloween-y event and they had a, a little play going and it was about Mary Burns. And I knew that we were descended from her somehow. So I went to this play and the old state house was packed. And I think it was the only one that cried. I thought, oh my God, this is my relative. It's so sad. And for everybody else, it was just a Halloween event. And Sarah, a question for you. Does that, does that resonate when you see witches kind of cartoonified in the way that we often treat them, particularly in the end of October? Does it feel like it's too sensitive a topic to treat with such a light touch? You know, the archetype of the witch is so complex and um, it's it, like all of these other pieces of the history, that in itself is its own animal. Um, descendants do, as uh, Senator Anwar has been quoted as saying, deeply feel the pain of what happened to their ancestors. But, you know, when you see the symbol of the witch today, to a lot of people, they're trying to take back power that's been taken from them. So, you know, I understand... I understand why we have all these layers to the the view of what a witch is. That's why it's very important to keep reading and looking at the women that were called witches and what we're saying um, are lore and folklore. You know, we need to know the difference and we need to know because the elderly women in this world right now that are also getting violently hurt from these misunderstandings are vulnerable and they're going to keep facing these attacks until we get more education out there. Professor Little, you were talking about some of the kind of like bigger social forces that might have contributed to this like airborne ambient anxiety that then is fueling these accusations, turning neighbor against neighbor. I know that you mentioned the like social disruption of technology, the printing press may have had something to do with that feeling of social unease. 
you know, the the way that we use the word witch trial now, like that's a that's a term we often reference. And we're not talking about colonial era witch trials. We've sort of expanded that term in a metaphorical way to talk about the kinds of political and social interactions we're having today. Do you see a through line? Like, do you see a parallel between the events of today and some of the precursors for those colonial trials? Yes, because uh, although it's almost 400 years later, um, humans have not evolved in our psychology and our sociology to the point where we're beyond um, vulnerability to these kinds of sort of, uh, you know, social crazes, cultural crazes. Um, The world that gave us the witch trials in the 17th and early 18th centuries was, in fact, a world in the midst of very dramatic change. Um, You know, it's about a century or so after Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, which led to a couple of centuries of religious warfare in Europe, which spilled over, of course, into uh, the colonization of North America and warfares between warfare between Catholic and Protestant countries in North America and with Native Americans. And of course, this is also the world that's uh, that's on the on the verge of the scientific revolution and, you know, the Enlightenment in the 18th century. So this is, this is the world that gave birth to the modern world, this, this, this world that is come, uh, coming out of this uh, world of uh, what we might see as um, suspicion and, and, um, and witchery. Um, but it is important to remember that witches were very real in the minds of people who accused people of witchcraft. Witches were real and they were sincerely believed to be able to exercise diabolical powers. And that's why it was considered appropriate for civil courts, for, excuse me, criminal courts, to take action against these very, ter- you know, these terrifying, mostly women, who could channel this demonic power. Can I, can I ask a follow-up to that? And if this veers too philosophical, rein it in. But... What I'm hearing you say is that in the minds of the accusers, which is a real meaning, this isn't a pretext by which to extract vengeance necessarily on a neighbor with whom I have a personal feud. Like, I think they've actually sickened my cow or blighted my crops or sickened my child. And in some way, if those accusations are made in good faith, then what we don't have is a series of bad actors, right? We have a worldview that's broken. What does that then say about the caution with which we should each approach our own worldview today? I think, I think it does suggest that we should be wary of being taken up by unevidenced conspiracy theories. Mm. And I think that we can all think of a lot of interesting examples that we've seen in the last couple of years where, where people have gotten swept up in conspiracy theories and, and taken even very dramatic, violent action. Um, but I will say this. I, I do believe that most people who were uh, individual villagers accusing other villagers of witchcraft, I, I can't rule out the possibility that some of them were bad actors taking advantage mm-hmm. of a situation. But I think most of them really were true believers. The people who I blame for the witchcraft crazes and outbreaks, both in Europe and in North America, are the leadership, are the people in power, the magistrates and the ministers who sanctioned this unevidenced uh, conspiracy theory, essentially, um, however you know deep and sincere its roots in people's sort of religious imaginations, um, but they are the people who, uh, some of them from the very beginning of the witchcraft trials in early New England, 
um, as as um, Senator Anwar suggested, John Winthrop Jr., the former governor of, of Connecticut, a, a, a medical doctor himself, um, they they knew, they saw, and were critical of the ways the courts were seizing upon what came to be known as spectral evidence, um, basically just a mere accusation uh, without any material grounding in the real world. And it was the leadership that let this stuff get out of control. Well, there are certainly lessons there, I'd imagine, for modern-day magistrates and ministers. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. That was Professor Ann Little, who is a professor of history at Colorado State University. Also with us today was Sarah Jack of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project. Thank you so much to both of you for the insight on this segment. And a quick reminder that 1A has a text club. It's the fastest way to connect with us. You can find out how to sign in under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Today's show was produced by Anna Casey, June Leffler, and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Dessa. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping... Your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.